morning. I'm delighted to be here with you this morning at uh, Life Church. And uh, my wife, Kiki, who's sitting here on the front row, she and I and our kids have been coming here for uh, the last, uh, I think, three months or so. And uh, appreciate the, the warmth of your uh, love and reception and just what God is doing here. And especially appreciate the opportunity that uh, Pastor Ryan and Pastor Arnie have given me to be able to share the Word of God with you today and for the next couple of weeks, break the bread and ask the Lord to, to challenge our hearts in a very deep way. I appreciate what Pastor Ryan said earlier about um, the, uh, the businessman named Dan Cathy with Chick-fil-A and his stand for uh, the sanctity of marriage, one man, one woman. And, uh, of course, that's been in the news lately. And uh, last week I was down in San Diego, out in San Diego with uh, Pastor Arnie and uh, the Grace Church International, which Life Church is a part of this Grace Church movement. There were about, I don't know, maybe five, 600 of us or so in uh, the, the convention. And uh, Pastor Steve, who's the head of the whole Grace Church movement, said, let's all go to Chick-fil-A on Wednesday, August 1st, as a way of standing with uh, Dan Cathy and the stand that Chick-fil-A has made for traditional biblical values. So about 500 of us got in our cars at lunchtime and went to Chick-fil-A. There were already thousands of people there. We waited in line an hour and a half for a chicken sandwich. Uh, it was a good chicken sandwich, but the news media was there, and it was so exciting to see people uh, there for conviction. Really, that's what it was all about, not just for chicken, but out of conviction to say, we stand with this company. I know personally that Chick-fil-A has given tens of millions of dollars to the cause of preaching the gospel around the world. I've been in the same room with Dan Cathy one time, heard him speak, and uh, know that that is an amazing company that's committed to uh, the Great Commission. And uh, speaking of the Great Commission, I'd like to begin there this morning with uh, Matthew chapter 28, and let's just have a word of prayer as we start. Lord, thank you so much for the opportunity of being alive and being here and uh, being your child. And Lord, I pray that you would refresh us and renew us and just lift us to higher levels in you this morning. And I pray that you'd open our hearts and challenge us with your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Does anybody need a Bible, by the way? The ushers are here with Bibles. Would you raise your hand? If you didn't bring your Bible or you don't have one, uh, I think you can even take that one home with you if you'd like to. So anybody need? Great. Thank you very much. I think the scriptures will be up on the screen as well, but we want you to have a Bible to follow along. And uh, this morning, I, I want to make a little bit of an analogy here to begin with. Uh, how many of you have flown on an airplane before? Probably just about everybody. You know that an airplane has two wings, and that's kind of like, like a church has two wings as well. Uh, you need two wings to fly this airplane called church. You need evangelism, reaching out, being fishers of men. Jesus said, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. I guess the implication there is if we're not, if we're not fishing, we're not really following. <laughs> Ouch, that, that kind of hurt for being in the introduction, didn't it? <laughs> if we're not fishing, we're maybe not really following. So that's the one wing is evangelism. The other wing in this uh, airplane called the church is, is discipleship, where we don't want to just be a follower of Christ. We want to be a disciple. We don't want to just be out there on the fringe. We want to be in the inner circle of uh, 
knowing God and knowing his heart. There's a great verse in the Psalms. It says, Israel knew God's deeds, but Moses knew God's ways. Do you see the difference there? A follower, like the Israelites, they were kind of out there on the fringe. They, they saw what God did. They observed it from afar. But Moses, he was definitely a man after God's own heart. He knew God's ways. He kind of was in the inner circle. And that's where I'd like us to be during this. By the time this series is over, is not just be a follower on the fringe, just observing what God does, observing. But we want to be in that inner circle and know God's heart and know God's ways. Uh, maybe you've heard sometimes uh, organizations will have what they call an insider briefing. It's not just for anybody. You have to be kind of in the inner circle to get this information. And that's where I'd like us to be by the time we're finished with our, our series here is, is in, in an insider's briefing with the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, like Moses, who knew God's ways. So we got two wings. we got evangelism. We've got discipleship. Matthew chapter 28 starts off, we call this the Great Commission. What an awesome couple of verses this is. I love the Great Commission. To me, it's pretty much my purpose for living. You know, it says in uh, uh, the, the Westminster Confession, which is a document from the Presbyterian Church, it says the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. And nowhere is that stated better than in, in the Great Commission, in Matthew 28, 19 and 20. So let's read this together here if we can. Uh, beginning at verse 18, Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Jesus said, go and make disciples. So if we're called and commanded to make disciples, that would mean that we have to what? We have to first be a disciple. <laughs> we can't make disciples if we're not a disciple. So that's the question before us this morning. Am I a disciple of Jesus Christ? What is a disciple? How can I become a disciple? And how will I know when I am a disciple? A disciple is a learner. And I, I love the way uh, it's written here in the, in the Greek. I know a little Greek. He runs a deli down on Broadway. <laughs> that's a joke. That's a theologian joke. No, the, the little bit of Greek that I remember from seminary says that when it says go and make disciples in the original Greek, the meaning is as you're going to work, as you're going to visit your family, as you're going down the sidewalk, as you're going wherever you're going, make disciples. So obviously we have to first be a disciple to make a disciple. doesn't necessarily mean we have to get on an airplane and go to Africa or India, and be a missionary in order to fulfill the Great Commission. It actually says, as you're going to the office, as you're going to the grocery store, as you're walking the dog, make disciples of all nations. The word disciple comes from discipline, which of course means to be trained. It means to be a learner. 
in the first century, when, when Jesus walked on the earth physically, uh, rabbis during Jesus' day would have a group of disciples that would hang out with them basically 24-7, hour by hour, day by day, week by week, month by month. These 12 disciples would sit in a circle around the, the rabbi and listen to the rabbi as he taught them the Torah, the Old Testament Many of these disciples would eventually memorize the entire Old Testament word for word, if you can imagine that. And uh, they took on not only the, the teaching, but also the, the life characteristics of their rabbi. The story was told, in fact, of a particular rabbi named uh, Gamaliel, who taught, and he had a, uh, a kind of a shoulder tick. When he would teach, he would make this kind of weird mannerism with his shoulder, and his disciples saw him do that, you know, month after month, year after year, as they were learning at his feet. So when the disciples became rabbis, teachers, not only would they teach what Gamaliel taught, but they would have that same kind of shoulder tick. <laughs> and others would say, I, I know who your rabbi was. I can tell by the, the, the mannerism, the, the, the tick that you have. You were taught by, by Gamaliel, because he does that too. And, you know, that's, that's the essence of discipleship right there, that, that the disciple would become like the rabbi. Not only in the tick, but primarily in the teaching. We see that played out uh, later on in Acts chapter 4, when uh, Peter and John are going to the temple at the time of prayer, and there's a crippled beggar laying on the side of the road, and uh, this crippled beggar says, can you help us? And Peter and John said, in the name of Jesus, rise up and walk. And that crippled beggar jumped to his feet and began praising God. And you'd think that everybody, including the Jewish rabbis, would be thrilled. But it uh, wasn't necessarily the case. Actually, Peter and John were arrested and thrown into jail and punished severely. But here's what the Jewish rabbis, the leaders, said in Acts 4.13. The members of the council, these were the Pharisees, who arrested uh, Peter and John. The, the members of the council were amazed when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, for they could see that they were ordinary men with no special training in the Scriptures. They also recognized them as men who had been with Jesus. Isn't that powerful? The members, the, probably the same Jewish ruling council who arrested and crucified Jesus now observed the behavior of Peter and John and said, you're acting just like Jesus acted. You're teaching the same thing he taught. You're living the same way he lived. And you're healing the same way he healed. And rather than praising God, they arrested him. But the point is they observed the mannerisms and the teaching of Rabbi Jesus uh, in Peter and John. So the question is to people around us, especially on Monday morning or maybe especially on Friday morning, Recognize us as people who have been with Jesus. Have we been at the feet of the rabbi long enough where we've taken on his teachings, where we've taken on his mannerisms, where we talk and we think and we act like our rabbi Jesus? C.S. Lewis, who's a tremendous uh, British, was a tremendous British writer, he wrote uh, Chronicles of Narnia, perhaps you uh, recall that, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, some of those others. He says, the truth is that we naturally fight against discipleship. At the back of it, there lies the central citadel of obstinacy. 
I will not give up my right to myself. The thing God intends you to give up, if ever you're going to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, until you have given up yourself to him, you will not have a real self. Boy, that's penetrating, isn't it? That's deep. You think, is that deep? If you think that's deep, say that's deep. Until you have given up yourself to him, you will not have a real self. And this is just by way of introduction. I'd like to share with you a little bit of my own personal testimony in a few minutes and then start off by looking at six characteristics that Jesus says true disciples are. We often can think, well, you know, what is a, what is a disciple? Maybe somebody who goes to church once or twice a month, maybe somebody who throws a few dollars in the offering and says a prayer at the table. That's our modern definition, perhaps, of what a disciple is. But actually, Jesus had a whole different definition of what a disciple is. And we're going to take a look at that, the first characteristic today. And then over the next couple of weeks, I'd like us to really dig deep into the six qualifications or characteristics that Jesus lays out for what a disciple looks like. He spells out six things very clearly that we're going to take a look at. In the church today, it's uh, become vogue or, or chick to call oneself a Christ follower. We have the Willow Creek people to thank for that, I think. Rather than being called a Christian, people say, oh, I'm a Christ follower, to separate themselves maybe from the kind of a cultural Christian label. I'm a Christ follower. That's a wonderful thing to be a Christ follower. And yet, I would like to suggest that there are levels of Christ followers, beginning, if you think of concentric circles with me, Look into the Gospels with me for a moment. Jesus taught, and there were people that would come around because there were miracles. You know, even in in our text in Luke chapter 14, if you want to turn with me there, Luke chapter 14, it starts off by saying large crowds were with Jesus. Luke 14, verse 24, I believe it is. Oops, I'm using this iPad Bible here, and it's kind of a new thing for me. Luke 14, verse 25, actually, it is. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus. So think of the 5,000 that were there when he um, uh, did the multiplication of the loaves and the fishes. Or if there was a miracle uh, displayed, then there were large crowds. If there was something to, to be gotten for free, large crowds. That's that first concentric circle, the first level of discipleship, if you will. But now think through the Gospels with me a little bit. And into the book of Acts, we think of uh, the 120. That's another concentric circle that were with uh, uh, Jesus in the upper room. And the day of Pentecost, rather, and how uh, when the Holy Spirit was poured out, there were 120. And then even a smaller group of disciples, think of, uh, of the 70. So we have large crowds, the masses. Then we have 120. And then we have 70 that Jesus sent out to uh, heal the sick and cast out demons. And then inside the 70, there were the 12, the, the apostles that were handpicked. And the future of Christianity depended on what those 12 would do. And even, even within the 12, there were three who were particularly close. The inner circle three. Do you remember who those were? Any guesses? Peter, James, and John. That's right. And of those three, I would say there was one who was probably the closest to Jesus, and that would be John, certainly. At the crucifixion, Jesus said to Mary, uh, 
John will take care of you <laughs> in my absence. And at, at the Last Supper, John was the one there who, who uh, knelt at uh, Jesus' chest and was there closest to him. And so there are levels of discipleship. And I'd like us to move from being a part of the crowd to being in that inner circle and explore exactly what that means. There's a wonderful quote here from a book written by Brendan Manning called The Ragamuffin Gospel. If you ever have a chance to read that, it really gives hope to people who have disappointed God. And here he says, what makes authentic disciples is not visions or ecstasies, biblical mastery of chapter and verse, or spectacular success in the ministry, but a capacity for faithfulness, buffeted by the fickle winds of failure, battered by their own unruly emotions, and bruised by rejection and ridicule, authentic disciples may have stumbled and frequently fallen, endured lapses and relapses, gotten handcuffed to the flesh pots and wandered into a far country, yet they kept coming back to Jesus. One of the marks of someone who's on their way to being a disciple is that in spite of failing, in spite of disappointing God and disappointing yourself and others, you keep getting up. I love the verse in uh, 1 Corinthians in the Phillips translation where uh, Paul says, I am knocked down, but I'm not knocked out. (laughs) Have you ever been there before? Knocked down, but not knocked out. Uh, Just in the process of kind of getting to know each other here, I wanted to share with you a little bit of my own story and uh, make myself vulnerable to you even to some extent, I, I might add. Uh, I grew up here in Green Bay. I went to Schwabenon High School. Go Jaguars. And uh, still enjoy going to the uh, Jaguars game. And uh, after a pretty normal childhood, uh, had some difficulties in uh, my, my home family, and my parents got a divorce, and I ended up uh, becoming pretty frustrated and angry and even... Uh, just rambunctious at times and ended up uh, having the police called on me a couple times for fighting with people. And it was just a very difficult time. And then finally, after I graduated from high school, I had a friend in, in high school. His name was Keith. He was about five foot five. And he invited me to his church youth group. And I went along and uh, ended up going to Spencer Lake Youth Camp in Wapaka. Maybe some of you have been there before. And there I heard the gospel for the very first time. And I was in the back row and the preacher said, Uh, For God so loved the world, including everybody here, that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And he said, if you'd like to receive that everlasting life, raise your hands as high as you can and come to the front. And I was uh, uh, kind of a a CE Lutheran. You know what that is? Uh, Christmas and Easter. Kind of a Lutheran guy. And uh, this whole idea of accepting Jesus kind of terrified me. But I knew that what he was talking about was true. So I don't know how it happened, but I found myself at the front and for about three hours just stood there repenting and and crying and asking God to make me new and cleanse me. And that was June 28th, 1980. Still stands as my favorite day of the year (laughs) when I could celebrate what, what the Lord did that day. And shortly after that, I went off to Marquette University in Milwaukee. I was going to be a biomedical engineer. And I went to a church service on a Wednesday night, and we had a missionary guest speaker that Wednesday night, and he talked about the baptism of the Holy Spirit and speaking in tongues. And, of course, I'd never heard of any of that either and uh, found myself at the front again (laughs) praying and receiving this baptism of the Holy Spirit and speaking in tongues. And 
Then I went back to my dorm room at Marquette, and I, I knelt down at the, uh, the bed there. It was this tiny little pie-shaped dorm room, just enough room to turn around in. And I was kneeling at the bed, and I was praying and thanking God for what happened. And all of a sudden, God spoke to me. And that's only happened maybe three times in my whole life. And he said, 2 Timothy chapter 4. I knew nothing about the Bible. I'd just gotten saved. And I'm sitting here, 2 Timothy chapter 4. What in the world is that? Well, maybe it has something to do with the Bible. I just came from church, and now I'm saved. And look at all that's happened to me lately in the last couple months. So I looked in uh, the... um, table of contents and found there was a second Timothy and I turned to chapter four and I began to read and it says in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus who will judge the living and the dead and in view of his appearing and his kingdom I give you this charge preach the word be prepared in season and out of season correct rebuke and encourage with great patience and careful instruction for the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine instead to suit their own desires they'll gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. But you, keep your head in all situations. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist and fulfill all the duties of your ministry. And I thought, this is strange. Lord, are you calling me (laughs) into the ministry? That was a very bizarre thought because we had really no uh, uh, ministers in our family at all. Far from it. Uh, Alcoholics and drug addicts, yeah, but not ministers. And uh, so I just kind of put that aside. And it was later confirmed many times through believers at church and ended up going to Bible school. And then I was a pastor in Chicago and a missionary in Madagascar for 10 years. Actually, I was a crusade evangelist and church planter on the island of Madagascar. And God blessed in marvelous ways. It was really phenomenal for uh, a one-talent missionary like myself, you know, on a good day, one-talent to stand up in front of eight or 10,000 people and share the word of God and see many thousands of people come to Christ and plant churches. And we saw God blessing in many marvelous ways. And, and then after about uh, nine or 10 years of, of experiencing that, for some reason I found my, my heart growing cold towards God and drifting away from obedience and into disobedience and into immorality and uh, found that the price to pay for that is very, very high. In fact, I remember one day as I was in that, the Lord said, if you continue in this, you will lose your marriage and your ministry and your children. And that's a painful thing to hear. And I remember kind of brushing that off, and uh, I ended up going through a a divorce and uh, losing... The, the, the ministry in Madagascar. And uh, somehow God drew the line at the children, thankfully. And I found myself in a place of, of rebellion against God. Here I was preaching to thousands of people and yet living in disobedience, in, in immorality. And uh, finally that caught up to me and uh, found myself uh, very alone. You know, that's one thing the devil does. He promises a lot of things, but at the end, you are alone. And um, that, that was a couple of years, and uh, I met Arnie Jacobson at, uh, at Bayside, the old Bayside. Many of you are familiar with that. And uh, he warned me, and he encouraged me to repent, and yet I did not accept it. And uh, I was on staff with him, 
and he fired me. <laughs> That's the grace of God. Here I am today. Uh, he, he justly, correctly fired me. We were together last week at the Grace Church Convention in San Diego, and I said, man, uh, we've been here three days. I, we've talked more in these three days than I did in two years of being on staff with you. <laughs> and uh, God is doing a, a reconciling there, and I'm thanking him for that. So I guess what I'm trying to say is that uh, sin has a very high price to pay. And the good news is that even if you find yourself drifting and away from God, he'll reach down and give you a second chance. He is the God of the second chance. I love what it says in the Old Testament about, about uh, Jonah. After Jonah refused to listen to the word of God, it said, and the Lord came to Jonah a second time. You know, And even look at Jesus when uh, he healed that blind man. He put mud on the blind man's eyes. And it was a little blurry, and then he did it again. And finally, there was, uh, he's the God of the second chance and the third chance. No matter how many times you failed, he's there to reach down and lift you back if you'll allow him to make you his disciple. Uh, I mentioned earlier this wonderful document called the Westminster Confession. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. A disciple is somebody who says, I want to glorify God with everything I am, and I want to enjoy him forever. You ever think about enjoying God? It's usually not a phrase that we associate with God. I mean, we think of worshiping and serving and obeying and submitting and all that, but do you ever think about enjoying God? A disciple is somebody who has learned how to enjoy God. It, uh, there's a, a group of people who are called hedonists. You ever hear that phrase before, a hedonist? They have certain resorts called hedonism. Uh, I think it's a lot about sensual pleasure. <laughs> but a hedonist is someone who seeks pleasure for pleasure's sake. But I would like to suggest that we become Christian hedonists. A disciple is a Christian hedonist, someone who says, I want all my pleasure to be found in God. It says in Psalm 37, 4, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. When you are delighting in him, his desires become your desires. So that's a little bit of what I would call an introduction to this whole concept of discipleship. You've got the one wing of evangelism, the other wing of discipleship, and a disciple is somebody who says, I'm entering into a covenant relationship with Jesus Christ. And let's take a look at that a little bit. Here in Luke chapter 14, Jesus gives us the first three descriptors of what a disciple looks like. And then there's three more in John that we'll take a look at in just a second. Luke chapter 14, uh, starting at verse 25, we read the first part. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus. And turning to them, he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even, as, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. Ouch! <laughs> Second verse. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. That's not an easy one either. We'll talk about that next week. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't he first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying this person began to build and 
wasn't able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he's not able, he'll send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? So I'd like us to take a look at uh, those uh, three. We're going to look at the first one this morning just briefly and the last two tomorrow. And then there's three more in John that we'll look at. In John 8.31, Jesus talks about persevering in the word as a characteristic of a disciple. In John 13.35, or uh, 35, he talks about loving one another as discipleship characteristic. In John 15.8, he talks about bearing fruit You are truly my disciple if you bear fruit. We're going to look at all those in the next couple of weeks. But for this morning, let's finish by just looking at this first one here. When Jesus says something that's pretty astounding, actually, and at first glance, you'd almost think it would be contradictory to what what Paul said when he says, husbands, love your wives and things like that. Here Jesus says, if you want to be my disciple, well, here's what it really means. If you want to be my disciple, you must hate everyone else by comparison. He's drawing a a comparison or a hyperbole or an exaggeration, a common form of speech back in Jesus' day. We use it today. We talk about, I told you a million times or something like that. It's a bit of an exaggeration to make a point. Here Jesus said, if you want to be my disciple, the first mark of a true disciple is someone who loves Jesus so far beyond every other love in his life. So far beyond love for spouse or parents or sisters, brothers, children, that by comparison it almost looks like like hatred. Putting Jesus first is the number one mark of a disciple of Jesus Christ. It means that we want what he wants more than what we want. That's what a disciple of Jesus is. I want to say that again so that really sinks in. A disciple is someone who says, Lord, I want what you want more than I want what I want. I want to challenge you with that thought right there. A disciple enters into a covenant relationship with Jesus to put him first above all else. The concept of a covenant is is quite common in the uh, scriptures and even elsewhere. We talk about the covenant of marriage. We talk about the covenant that God made with Moses or with Abraham. The idea behind a covenant, and actually in the Hebrew, it talks about cutting a covenant. A covenant is cut. refers to an animal like an ox, where an ox would be taken and actually cut in two. One side is laid over here, the other half is laid over here, and then the two parties that are making this covenant would walk between the sliced open ox And the implication is if either one of us violate the terms of this covenant, what happened to the ox would happen to us. (laughs) That's the idea of a covenant. It's a holy, sacred agreement that we make. And here, Jesus says that a disciple is someone who enters into a covenant relationship where we put him first above all else. I want to encourage you this morning to think about Am I a disciple of Jesus Christ or am I just a follower? Am I kind of out on the fringe there? Am I more of a cultural Christian? Or am I someone who is radically sold out 
for Jesus Christ? Have I entered into that covenant relationship where I make Jesus Lord of all? He's not just my Savior, but he, in fact, is Lord. And he'll challenge you. You know, when you're praying, when you're reading the Scripture, he'll say, here's an area in your life. I want you to give this up. I want you to turn this over to me. And there's a great example of this in uh, Joshua. We're going to end with this in Joshua chapter uh, 5, if you'll turn with me there. Joshua chapter 5. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua. In chapter 5, uh, Israel had just uh, come out of a, a wonderful battle over the, uh, the uh, uh, Canaanites, and they were wandering through that uh, wilderness for 40 years, and a number of, of the, the men died, but the ones who were born during that 40 years of, of wandering had not yet been circumcised, so there was this, uh, this covenant that God brought to them, and the sign of it was uh, circumcision. And then the Lord appeared to Joshua in verse 13. This was right after he sealed his relationship with Israel, and he says, now when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and he saw a man standing in front of him. And uh, in the King James, it has a capital M for the word man because that man was actually Jesus himself. This was a pre-Bethlehem, pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. We call this a Christophany. Jesus appeared in the Old Testament. A man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went up to him and asked, Are you for us? Or are you for our enemies? <laughs> Neither, he replied. But as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. Then Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence and asked him, What message does my Lord have for his servant? The commander of the Lord's army replied, Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. So Joshua said, Are you for us or are you for our enemies? And the Lord responded to him and said, I'm not here to take sides. I'm here to take over. And that's what he's saying to us today as well. He's, he's not here to, to take sides. He's here to take over. He wants to take over in your life. And for you to enter into that covenant relationship to be his disciple. And the Lord ministered to Joshua there. And Joshua said, all right, Lord. Uh, what message does my Lord have for his servant? And the, the commander of the Lord's army, who was Christ himself, he said, take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy. Why would he say such a thing? Why would he say take off your sandals? It was a reminder that this is a sacred covenant that Joshua was entering into, a covenant of discipleship, a covenant of victory. And the Lord said, the place where you're standing is holy. And I want you to remember this moment because I am meeting with you here. This is a remembrance stone for you. So as, as we begin to think about what the Lord would say to us, I'd invite you to stand with me, if you will. I'd like to invite you to stand with me and just begin to ask the Lord to make you his disciple. This is a holy place. The Lord said to Joshua, the place where you are standing is holy. This is a holy place. This is a holy moment because I'm encouraging you and challenging you to step up to the plate in your Christian life and ask the Lord to forgive you for the times you failed. I've shared with you how I've had to do that and continue to have to do that in various ways every day, many times a day. 
And I want to encourage you to become a disciple of Jesus Christ. The commander of the Lord's army replied, take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy. And as Nikki begins to, to lead us in worship, I want to ask you to do something. I don't normally uh, uh, you know, encourage people to do like weird things or anything. You don't know me all that well, but I want to challenge you to do something kind of unusual this morning. We're talking about becoming a disciple. We're talking about a radical lifestyle. Something like Dan Cathy from Chick-fil-A who said, I don't care. I don't go with the values of Chicago or Boston. I go with the values of the King of King and Lord of Lords. I want to encourage you to take on that discipleship commitment this morning and seal it with a symbol, just like Joshua. The Lord said to Joshua, take off your sandals. So as we worship, if you'll say to Jesus, yes, Lord, yes, I want to be your disciple. I don't want to be a follower from afar. I don't want to be in the crowd. I want to be in the inner circle. I don't want to just know your deeds. I want to know your ways. If that's your commitment, would you, would you take off your shoes and make the place where you're standing holy ground? Just do that. Now, if you're making the commitment to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, let's just do that now, should we? Nikki, lead us in this worship. And as we're worshiping, as we're singing, make the place where you're standing a holy place. Take off your shoes and say, Lord, make me your disciple. He met with Moses and told Moses to take his shoes off. He met with Joshua, told Joshua to take his shoes off because the place where you're standing is holy. I am sealing a covenant with you. And allow the Lord to do that in your heart this morning. Shall we do that? Let's worship together. Yes. Respond to his call to be his disciple right now. Say, yes, Lord, make me your disciple. I shout unto you, Lord, make me your disciple. Forgive me for the times that I've failed you, Lord. Thank you that you are the God of the second and the third and the fourth chance and that you never give up on us. You called us to be in your inner circle this morning, like John. We want to know your heart, Lord. We want to know your ways, not just your deeds. Oh, Jesus. We take our shoes off as you told Joshua to do. As a way of acknowledging the holiness of this moment. And that a covenant is now being cut where we say yes to being a disciple. We will put you first above anything else in our life, Lord. Above any other relationship. Above any possession. Even above our dreams and our goals, Lord, we put you first. We enter into that covenant of discipleship relationship with you. Praise you, Jesus. Yes, I'm going to pray. If you just re- Let's have everybody just repeat after me. Dear Jesus, I come to you now, and I confess that I'm a sinner, and I invite you into my life to be my Lord, to be my Savior. Cleanse me of all my sins. Wash me on the inside. Cleanse my soul and make me your disciple. I enter into a covenant relationship of being your disciple from this day forward. In Jesus' name, amen.
Amen.